have Kate Brad Goldman with me today. She's CEO and founder of Cybermaniacs, an innovative new cyber awareness company. With over 20 years in the IT trenches, Kate brings a unique perspective from all sides of the IT business and vendor equation. She's also a director of development for the Ladies of London Hacking Society and speaks international leadership, cybersecurity, and technology change topics. Kate, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. Thanks so much. Well, I did a little bit of research on the company. Absolutely loved your marketing strategy, which we will dive into. I think it's so, so cool. But tell me a little bit about your career first. Where did you start? And then how did you get to uh, working in the space, cybersecurity space? Oh, so it's, um, you know, I think it's a journey to tell you the truth that I think a lot of people can share with this that not everyone's career is a straight path forwards. Um, so, so I look back at the road and I sort of go, there's a bunch of Robert Frost moments I think I had um, mm. choosing the path less traveled and, and trying different things. So uh, I guess you could summarize it by saying that, um, you know, the first 10 years of my career after university were really in sales and business development, marketing functions um, in the technology space. So I kind of feel like, you know, in New York in my 20s, I got to see cloud and I got to see software as a service and I got to see uh, a lot of this technology, big data in its infancy before it actually turned into what it is today. Um, so that kind of I cut my teeth kind of in that area. Um, and then I was lucky to work for um, an organization called Gartner. They do uh, technology research and advisory in a way that was like going back to university because I got to look at things from a strategic perspective, um, global large organizations, what are you doing with IT and how are you leveraging it for value and where do you choose to invest your money? And so that was grappling with a lot of really big challenging problems. Um, mm. And from there, it was lucky I got poached by a client and I was uh, taken into, <laughs> taken inside the enterprise as opposed to doing things from outside. So, uh, so that led me on a journey of, okay, you know, Kate, you keep on coming around telling us all these things we should do. Why don't you come in and actually do it? And I went, Oh, well, that's interesting. Um, and then getting to the internal IT side and trying to implement global change programs, it's really hard. So we kind of learned from the other side, you know, all the, the, the smoke and mirrors that sometimes comes or it seems to come from salespeople, uh, actually trying to do it on the other side was really hard. So, so yeah, it's a bit of a winding journey um, from, from sales and marketing to actually doing IT, to actually then consulting on IT and, and business relationship management best practices, uh, and then the cyber maniacs. I think it's an excellent example, you know, when you just started saying, talking about it is never straight, like straight line. <laughs> like it's it's this classic uh, example of when you're trying to build a business, you have this um, this vision that looks like a straight line, super simple, A to B, and then you have the action, the reality line that that goes <laughs> anywhere but straight. <laughs> Well, and I think that the only the straight thing is not necessarily the career or the job roles, which is, you know, the unfortunate way a CV looks like right now. Um, but it's more like what drove you and what challenges did you overcome and, and what choices did you make, what opportunities were presented. And I think the, the thread that ties us all together is I've always been fascinated by the application of technology and how it can actually change business models or give advantage or be used in innovative ways to cobble things together and, and provide incredible value. So just, you know, watching some of these organizations roll out these large 
scale technologies or watching smaller startups kind of uh, take a piece out of the pie, you know, and, and mm. find that, that, that niche or competitive advantage and they can eat like a large bank for lunch just coming out of a garage. That, that is what's been motivating me for so many years. I'm just like, look at how that, that was, it's actually happening. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's a totally, absolutely amazing. What did you, like, when did you decide to found uh, Cybermaniacs and why, why was it the cyber security space? So it's it's an interesting question. I think um, I had done my own sort of consulting organization for about eight years. And to be honest, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, there's two reasons behind that. One was that I really like being the captain of my own ship and I like solving problems and, and helping different companies out. So it was fun from um, a consulting standpoint to work on multiple problems at the same time. But from a personal standpoint, um, I had just moved to London and um, I had three kids. So, well, I had three kids while I ran the consulting business. And so it gave me the flexibility, the lifetime, the, you know, the lifestyle flexibility to work when I wanted, travel when I wanted. I could work from anywhere. I could be virtual. Um, I could take two months off in the summer and take my kids to the beach. And so while they were small, it was really important for me to be at home. And so that kind of gave me the flexibility. So, so from there, you know, then all of a sudden the kids mm. went to school and I was like, huh, I got a lot more time. And there was two, two kind of things that crossed at the same time, which was, um, did I want to continue to have this lifestyle business? Did I want to continue to consult and freelance? I felt like I was always chasing clients. And I felt like a lot of the frameworks and a lot of the theories that I had created didn't scale. Right. And, right. and I had yeah. kind of gotten to the top of my day rate and I'd gotten to the top of a lot of stuff. And I was like, well, do I create a personal brand and scale that way? Or do I want to build a thing? Do I want to build a company? Do I want to um, try try my hand at something that's a little bit bigger that, that I'd worked with large companies on, but I'd never actually done myself. And so I spent a good year um, advising startups, walking around, looking at different things, trying to find a space to go to, trying to find um, the right place. I had tried to merge my consulting organization with some larger cybersecurity practices. Um, and it just never, never really clicked. There was nothing that really fit. And so one day over a cup of coffee, uh, one of my advisors and I were like talking about his challenges in cybersecurity. And he was, um, he, you know, he's a very interesting guy. He runs an IT operations department now, but he's a cultural anthropologist by training. So there's a mix you don't see every day. Yes. And he and I were talking and we we're like talking about the hoodies and the hackers and the fear. And we were like, God, there's just got to be a better way to train people, to talk about cyber, to, to build a, a culture of cybersecurity at an organization. And, and over that cup of coffee, that's when Cyber Maniacs was born. That's amazing. And uh, you build it into uh, initially into a brand that stands out massively anybody who reads your blog or watches any of your characters that you have uh, will be blown away i i absolutely believe so <laughs> <laughs> but how was uh, kate tell me a little bit about before we dive into it which is the most exciting mm -hmm. part <laughs> mm -hmm. well, how did you when you started your own business what was it like and how was it like to build a team for mm -hmm. you and when, when you just started you know, it, there was there was lots of moments of, of of excitement and pride, and there was lots of moments of you know imposter syndrome and what am I doing here? So, you know, it's not my first business. I had been a solopreneur for eight years, so I was comfortable with the mechanisms, and and I had been very familiar with what's going on, sort of in this space. I had I decided to advise a couple startups on their technology strategy and some of their go-to-market strategies. 
So I think in those years, I also accidentally learned the pitfalls <laughs> and some of the, yeah. some of the places not to go. Um, and, and that also being said, I come from a family of entrepreneurs. So, you know, my dad owns his own business. My brother owns his own business. This is not new to my family. So I did feel like coming onto the stage to try something a little bit bigger that I had a good team behind me already, a support system, you know, a husband that supported me, a family that supported me. I had good resources in the, you know, and good contacts that I had created over 20 years of business. And so I did feel like I had some places to go to ask for advice and to um, to bounce ideas off of and to ask people to throw wrenches at me because if you can dodge a wrench, right? You can dodge <laughs> a ball. And, uh, and so, so that's where I started. So I, I think that, you know, it, it was building the team um, was, is the most challenging. And I will say that we, you know, we've had to make some really hard decisions already. This, this young in our, this young in our uh, corporate, uh, corporate life to find the right people to build the right culture. And it's been, it's, that's been a real challenge. And speaking of that actually was my next question. Building a culture is super hard. And especially when you start to scale, uh, making sure that it actually fits your values and keep it and you keep it on track uh, going forward. How was it for you? Like, how do you build culture and then make sure that it stays the way that you want as you move forward, as you get mm -hmm. more clients, as you scale? Yeah, it's and I think that's a challenge that many entrepreneurs come up against. I think we had a couple good things, which is one, we believe in a human centric and a culture centric approach to cybersecurity. So getting the culture right and understanding our internal culture was sort of step one. Um, you can't go sell culture unless you Right. No, your own. Yes. Um, and, and so I think that we did start when we thought about the brand, the brand and the culture were born on the same day. So when we did all the brand exercises, we also thought about, well, what do we want about to, to project as leaders and what do we want our people to feel? And and what do we want to feel like the vision is that well, what, what problem are we trying to solve here? And so I think that that stuff kind of came naturally from the brand itself. And, and that's I think that's the nature of a startup because it's very personality driven. Um, uh, in the beginning when, you know, the founder sets the culture. Um, but then yeah. you're right, as it grows and as more people are getting involved, you know, it does take a bit of humility <laughs> on my part. And I've learned a lot more humility uh, in this process. But yeah, it, it is a constant conversation with with that, uh, especially because I use a lot of freelancers and a lot of contractors currently to, to scale this business. And how do you imbibe the culture? How do you get them to participate in the culture, even though they're not a full-time employee? That's been something we've grappled with. That's, that's definitely a challenge. Now, we, you are in the cybersecurity space, which is not mm. terribly exciting and it's hard to get somebody <laughs> too excited about cybersecurity, about all this DNS and all this HTTPS terms and yeah. all of these things. But you yeah. came up with something very, very different than anybody else. You came up with this idea of using puppet characters in yeah. your content, in your brand. How did you come up with this? Because I've seen that you did a lot of research, there's a lot of science behind it. And what was, how did this initial idea came about and then how did you build it into what it is at the moment? Yeah. So we, um, you know, we, we didn't plan on puppets. That wasn't, the, <laughs> that wasn't the, the first thought. So the first thought was how do we not do fear? And we just thought that look, people, when we talk about communications and training and we talk about changing a culture of security, we really thought that, look, this is about human behavior. 
Um, this is about our digital habits. And, and, and yes, you're right that the cybersecurity stuff can be super technical and it can be, you know, lots of jargon and weird words. And they say things like doxing and, you know, that all the crypto jacking and cryptocurrency mine. And you just go like, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, so for, for the people who aren't experts in the field, right, it sounds a lot like other highly specialized technical fields, whether that be big data, whether that be, you know, doctors or lawyers or, or any other highly technical specialized field. So, so anyway, so we, we were like talking about how do we not do FUD? How do we not do this? And we started to say, well, what other mechanisms could we use? And so humor came right up right front. We said, could we use humor for cybersecurity training? And so we took some time and did some research to say, uh, has humor been used before or can it be used in this way? So we looked at things mm -hmm. like um, public safety, public health campaigns. We looked at um, some other safety and risk type things because we didn't want to make light of cybersecurity itself. Because then there is the danger that people don't take it seriously. And actually, with the current threat, you, you need to take it yeah. very seriously, both personally um, and, and as an organization. And so that's something that, that I'm very passionate about now. The more that I've learned over the last couple of years, the more that I feel like I have to get out there and talk to entrepreneurs and talk to small business owners and talk to people about securing themselves and their families because we are we're in another game altogether right now. But so that's how it kind of generated. We said, could we use humor? We did research. We said, yeah, look at the, there's a great, um, <laughs> there's a great video by the Melbourne rail safety campaign. I think um, it's called dumb ways to die. And it's, this, <laughs> it's about, it's about not doing stupid things on railroad tracks. Like don't cross them when the lights are blinking and stuff. We all know, but people do anyways, because people die. Um, they get hit by oncoming trains. And so they put out this hysterically funny video that is so wrong on so many levels. Um, but it, really did increase awareness of this problem um, and it got huge awards in the marketing space and so it's a it's very catchy tune so so that was one of the things yeah. that we looked at and so from there we started to look at well what are the different humorous mechanisms we could use to actually deliver some of this stuff um, and the thing that came up was could we use humans and then we said nah you know people are very personal about their humans right now and there's already a company doing that so from a differentiation standpoint we couldn't do that we looked at 2D animation, but the love factor wasn't there. So we found that people really like 2D animation, but they don't love it. So they like it for a short explainer video. It's better than someone just reading, but there wasn't that passion. And then we looked at 3D animation. We were like, oh man, let's do 3D animation. And then we realized we were not Pixar. <laughs> and yeah. that stuff is expensive. So, so one of the, one of the items way down the list was puppets. And when we hit it, you know, everyone in the room just went, oh yeah, <laughs> like we have got to try this. <laughs> and so we just, you know, we totally startup style, like rented some puppets, found a green screen studio somewhere in London, um, ragtagged a team together, wrote a couple scripts, filmed some videos mm -hmm. and they were awful. Um, but that's mm -hmm. how it started. Yeah, that that's amazing. And I mean, I went on your website when I was doing my research and you have an, the, uh, the company video with the puppets yeah. explains what you do. The most engaging video I've seen by far because it just it just works Aww, and, and, thank and, you. You, and you just want to you just want to see it. And you could like after a couple of days, I could relate to pretty much everything yeah. I've seen. Is that and, the one with the with the white background where they're doing the little clips? Yeah. And so, yeah, you know, what's funny, the inspiration from that video came from all those political ads from 2016. 
So there were all those celebrities that got up and were doing all these ads about, you know, like why you should vote for a person or why you should care about a certain, um, a certain uh, candidate or a certain topic. And so right. we just took all those videos. We I was like, that's such a funny style. We could totally make fun of it. So we put the puppets up and then we cut them, you know, uh, on purpose to look mm. like one of those action, you know, political action videos. Anyways, this is a sidebar. <laughs> no, it was, it was, it was really genius. And I was always a fan of uh, the show ALF in the, mm. in the States. It was like, you know, airing for like super long time ago, but it was so much fun. And no. like, it, and it's just, you know, that relatability, I think is also an important part in, in your campaign. Well, that's where the research on the puppets went and doing your homework and understanding a your market, but then understanding the mechanisms you're trying to use um, really took off for us because so one of our advisors is a behavioral marketing um, expert. And so we we when we dug into it, we were like, oh, man, there's so much here. There's novelty with the puppets. There's um, this abstraction that allows us to, you know, so, for instance, I can do things that's illegal to do to a human, to a puppet. Right. right. So for cybersecurity training or for other things, it's great. I can drop a laptop on their head. It's fantastic. Um, so, so from a storytelling perspective and my ability to develop content or training content or marketing content, the, the puppet itself gives me a lot of leeway, right? Even animation does. There's a lot of things in animation you can create entire worlds that don't exist anywhere else. So there is that, that abstraction that allows us for humor. And so then there's also this nostalgia factor. Right. And I think I discounted that in the beginning because I was like, oh, novelty, fun, puppets, funny, abstract, great. But then the, 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 the brand affiliation, or I guess you could say like the association we have with other puppet brands, I didn't, um, I didn't really realize at the beginning what a boost that would give us when we first started because people love the Muppets. And as you do, people love ALF and people mm -hmm. love, right, um, here in the UK, there's a ton of different characters. And so there is just such a... Uh, childhood nostalgia slash brand passion for those it's kind of creeped over into ours and how was the response from the customers that you worked with what was uh, you have a section in faq which you explained why you went for this uh, approach which totally <laughs> makes sense but what, what was it like when you uh, talked to customers they watched the videos uh, what, yeah. what feedback did you get so it was funny because the the first reaction we got was really <laughs> you're what are you doing because we i made a lot of cold calls and people are like you're i don't i just i don't know and i was like let me just show you a video um let's just let's just start there um and 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 honestly the the response we got from especially the information security community because that was the first group of people that i was engaging with those would be my buying centers my customers the, the, we got an overwhelming response right away so there's still some people who are like eh, it's not going to meet our brand or we take ourselves too seriously we think puppets are going to make light of it but but everyone we've demoed has said this that that having that release or having that engagement part of it now again it's not all the training we do we have human-based training we have interactive modules we have games we've got a bunch of different things i think we're about 10 percent puppet fuzzy um, but, but that mechanism is just such a great release for a topic such as cybersecurity that has been just overdone with the hackers in the hoodies in the basement with the fear and the, the use of jargon. So this just kind of really shines through something very different. Uh, talk to me a little bit about, uh, being an entrepreneur and, you know, there's always sometimes this dark moments, as you just mentioned when we started, why mm -hmm. am I doing this? Uh, when some, when, you know, when it seems like it's just not working, what 
thoughts or behavior or maybe other tools that you have uh, or use to overcome that? What, what, what are yep. some of the things that work for you? Because we all have this thing, thoughts of like, oh, it doesn't look like I'm going to get out of it. Yeah, I think that for, for entrepreneurs, especially right now, you know, with putting together digital products, working with virtual teams, bootstrapping investors, you know, the whole the whole situation, there's there's the day to day flux of being able to think on your feet and manage multiple spinning plates and not drop anything. Um, but then there are those those longer moments that you have where you really have to take a really humble look at yourself and take a really humble look at your product. Um, you know, one of the one of the hardest things that I had to learn in the first six months was getting really good feedback and cherishing feedback. And, you know, I've worked in agile um, software development and, and in agile leadership before. And so it's like I knew that we welcome changing requirements and customer feedback mm -hmm. is the most important thing. And so it's but to internalize that when it's your personal product you're putting out there, it's very like nerve wracking. I'm like, these are like my babies. Um, what do you mean you don't like them? And and so being able to to sit down and have a conversation with myself, like, look, you have to go put it out there and you have to get as much feedback as possible. And so uh, learning that humility and learning to treat um, all feedback as a gift, like that was a really hard thing for me, especially because in the beginning, I kind of knew some of the videos sucked. <laughs> just, you know, but but you got to go put it out there anyways. You're like, it's not what I want, but it's just what right. I have. It's a, it's a skateboard. It's an MVP. So so mm -hmm. that's that's really hard. But I think people are more willing to work with you in that capacity. Now, people are understanding what a lean startup is and what um, some of these different mechanisms are. I think a lot of uh, the companies that we're working with right now are like, look, we love startups. Let's innovate together. And I was like, thank you. That's so nice. Um, so that's it. So I think that humility is part of it. I think just being able to sit down and talk to yourself and, and have those mm -hmm. moments. Um, but understanding also that it is like, I mean, it feels many days like I'm running a blender in a lightning storm. <laughs> but I like that. So, yeah, so, yeah. so, so some of it is also the thrill and you just have to be able to put yourself back into a state. So whether you use you know, exercise or a physical mechanism, or you use somebody as a sounding board, or you reward yourself when you've achieved certain goals, whatever that mechanism is, you have to continually put yourself back into a state where you're saying, all right, let's just move on. I can do it. What are we going to do next? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I think one of the things that also could help um, that I've heard and I've tried my, and I use myself many times is remembering where you came from, remembering the journey you went through and where you started. And especially when you see that the very V1 or maybe the first product you had or maybe the things you did initially years ago, then that you could see this massive progress and it means like you went that far and it at least creates a momentum in your mind that no, you're not actually stuck, you're just working through a temporary obstacle. Yeah, absolutely. The progress is the progress is everything, right? Because if you're progressing yeah. and you're growing towards something, then that's that's all the motivation, right? It's all baked into that. Now, you gave a talk at Women of Silicon Roundabout about assertiveness in the workplace. And I really liked what you talked about there. Where do you see people right now struggling with assertiveness? And then how can they get better with this? Yeah, it's assertiveness is such a great skill and i think that in terms of training or in terms of people's personal development i'm not sure there's enough really written on it although i think there are a lot of books and there's a lot of speakers that kind of touch on it but don't call it assertiveness so like angela duckworth's grit for instance um right. 
or when you look at resilience and you look at authenticity and leadership, I think all of those topics are kind of tied together and, and certainly emotional intelligence and all the work that Daniel Goleman's doing. Um, I mean, I tend to talk quite a bit to women in technology because that's sort of my background and, um, and I've been um, in them as a clan, I guess you could say. Um, although uh, with London Ladies of Hacking Society, I'm starting to to kind of develop the, the women in, in cybersecurity network. And, and that's a little bit more challenging because, I mean, here in the UK, only 11% of cybersecurity is women, hmm. which is a really low number. But, but assertiveness right. for, for women in technology in the workplace, it's about being able to, to speak your mind, be authentic and truthful to yourself, but also in a way that's um, respectful to others. And I think that people looking at that skill internally and people thinking about how they could be more assertive, it, it A, helps you get what you want. So it gives you that progress that you were talking about, that you want that forward momentum. But the mm -hmm. other thing is that we are working in such a more collaborative way, right? It's not like take your work, go off, do it, come back. It's, it's, there's so much more negotiation and there's so much more collaboration, virtual or in-person that needs to happen. We are now, um, you know, there's just too much uh, expertise and speciality broken off, right? You can't develop yes. a piece of software by yourself anymore. You need a team to do it because it's all hyper-specialized and, and highly complex. So, so we think that assertiveness is such a great underpinning skill to all the other soft skills because it helps give that, that power, that gasoline, right? That keeps your engine mm -hmm. going. And so, yeah, I think it's a really interesting topic. Right. Um, now I do like to talk about books and um, if I get an opportunity, I will on this podcast. Uh, yeah. What were the most impactful books you read on business or on marketing that um, you, that really maybe you came back to? Oh man, that's a, that's a really good question. I think, you know, I'm, I'm definitely of the mindset of I'm a, I'm, I'm a fast reader. And so I try to, to do the, you know, the famous CEO whip through a book in a week. Um, right. kind of habit. I'm not quite that good. Uh, but I think that, you know, there's, there's a couple of foundational ones. I grew up on value selling and I grew up on, um, you know, some of the Dale Carnegie stuff, to be honest. And mm -hmm. I think that those are always chestnuts. They're just such classics. Um, lately I've been trying to bone up a little bit on neuroscience and, um, things by David Engelman, mm. um, things around, um, how the brain responds to different marketing stimulus. So, you know, stuff from um, influence like Robert Cialdini. Mm -hmm. um, so I do a lot of his stuff. And, um, and I think also from like the user perspective, uh, one of the books that really changed the way that, that I think about designing for customers and understanding it is um, oh, The Jobs to Be Done. Oh uh, yeah, I love it. Roadmap. Yeah, and it's just like his work was so great because, you know, the whole McDonald's milkshake and whatnot. And the more I thought yeah. about it, I was like, yeah, you have to think about it from the customer's perspective and the journey they're on. What are they trying to do with your product? So I think those are come a couple that, that I've been, you know, going back and forth with right now as I continue to build out this human-centric, people-centric product. Interesting. I think there was a book, there's a couple of books on jobs to be done framework. And one of them was coffee versus kale. Uh, I don't know if you read that one. And <laughs> yeah. um, you know, even, even, even the title, like yeah. what, what do you mean coffee versus kale? But then they actually talk, they talk a lot about case studies in the book and they talk about that the coffee competes with kale smoothies. They, it, it is a real thing. And I'm like, this is yeah. amazing. And then they dive into the detail. So I, yeah, I think, jobs to be done is very cool and all of the 
all of the things that relate to how humans actually respond to, uh, to, to, market, to marketing and to uh, behavior change. Yeah, it's uh, very but, cool stuff. Uh, yeah, uh, but tell me a little bit about, uh, in terms of how do you deal with you know, emergencies, urgent tasks, whenever you start your day, like you obviously have a lot of things um, on your plate. What keeps you focused and how do you prioritize what's important, what's not, so you're not actually chasing things that might not quite move you forward? Yeah, I think that's a daily struggle, <laughs> to be honest. And, <laughs> and I keep on looking for the perfect software system to answer this for me. And, and the answer is I've had to dabble quite a bit and I still haven't found anything that that totally uh, gets all the things that I'm working on um, as a CEO in one box at one time. So I've got a couple things that I do. One is um, the walls of my office are covered in that plastic, you know, hang up disposable mm. uh, whiteboard paper. Um, mm -hmm. So basically I chart out all the different key areas that I'm working on at any one time. And I make sure to use a, a color coding and sort of a, a, a Sharpie sticker kind of um, approach to it. So it's like, I can always look up from my desk and I can always see where I am in certain processes. So I do have to dedicate time to updating that every week. And so that is my Monday morning. Um, usually mm -hmm. with a cup of coffee, I, I reserve an hour to do strategy and planning and just to make sure that I am staying on top of the things that are not urgent, but are important if you're going to do the you know traditional Eisenhower matrix type of approach to ABCD. Um, so I think that's one of it. I think the other thing that really helps me, and it is a bit of a luxury, is I have a virtual assistant. So mm -hmm. I have somebody who does... Um, a lot of, I wouldn't say it's project management, but they do a lot of scurrying and a lot of general, like, could you go figure this out for me? Or could you come back with a couple options for me? And I find that that uh, it's, you know, sort of the mosquito tasks um, that, that mm -hmm. land on my desk. And, and I have just given myself permission to delegate them because they don't require my influence or my um, decision-making as the CEO. So I've, I've mm -hmm. learned to, you know, I might not get exactly what I want out of it. Um, as, as yeah. someone, I'm like, I'm too much of a perfectionist, but, but I think that that's really helped me be more efficient is I can look at something that comes in on an email and I just, I hand it right off to my virtual assistant and, and I say, could you please figure this out for me? Mm. No, that, that definitely makes sense. Um, so where's everybody can find you online kid? So we're uh, the cybermaniacs.com, but we are also highly active on Twitter and on Instagram and LinkedIn. So you can find our pages there at the cybermaniacs. Very cool. Now, the last question I wanted to ask you, what impact would you like to have with cybermaniacs or personally uh, on the world? So I think I would love to have the impact that we've actually made a dent in helping people become more cyber safe. Um, there's there's so much cybercrime out there. It's going to cost the world $6 trillion globally um, by 2021. And that's more than many other types of global and international crime combined. And when you start to hear the personal stories of loss, you know, people who have um, saved up for 10 years to put a down payment on a house and then have, you know, someone scam them and they're, you know, they, they accidentally pay into the wrong account, which is run by hackers. Um, those things kind of break my heart. So it's like I, I would really love to give small businesses the tools that they need to help their people stay more cyber secure, to protect small businesses um, and to help global organizations right, with with 
getting the message out around the practical things that people need to do, you know, to, mm -hmm. um, to be more cyber safe. So anyone listening, the first things you guys should be looking at is your passwords, uh, making sure you're not reusing them, perhaps invest in a password manager, make sure they're long and complex. And then also just be really careful on email because phishing is everywhere. Um, the average, uh, the average user gets mm -hmm. anywhere between two to seven phishing or spam emails a day that come through the filters. And so everyone has to be really careful about clicking on links, downloading attachments from emails, especially if you don't know who sent it. Um, it might not actually be an Amazon gift card at the other side of that email, I'm just saying. So so it's those things that that's what I really like for people to, to realize that these, these digital skills are super important right now and going forward. No, absolutely. And I mean, a random fact that I'll throw in is that I was just reading a book on marketing and the first spam email was sent in 1978 which is insane <laughs> that is insane <laughs> yeah it was with a, with whatever version of internet existed at that time but this was the very first one that was promoting some sort of a it was, i think it was some sort of a sale and it was like sent to 200 people uh, from from the from the email list but i thought it was just like that's crazy 1978 who would have thought right well, you know, I mean that the ARPANET was 1974, so it's not it's not too far too far off of that. I think that you know it used to be a pastime, it used to be a fun hobby. Let's do a couple crazy viruses, whatever. But it's <laughs> it's 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 now organized global cybercrime, and and it has their state sponsored aspects to it. So, um, you know, if your if your listeners aren't yet doing any reading in cybersecurity or haven't quite put the cyber news onto their news feeds, I, I would definitely do it because this is going to be a strategic risk for all businesses in the in the in the future. It's it's not going away anytime soon. No, absolutely. And I mean, we'll all and we'll link all the resources uh, to your website, Kate, to, to, the, to, the, to the Twitter account below. But thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure and uh, sharing your wisdom and uh, talking a little bit about your company. Oh, thanks, Sergey, for having us. It was great.